has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Grand Michael Barber. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I know, yes, it was yesterday, but it's this whole weekend, this whole time of year, this whole good spirit of the season. However, covering a case like this case, it, it sort of takes... Thanksgiving out of you. You think of the families of uh, these four young people, uh, of Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zaina Kernodal, and Kaylee Ginkalvis, and we think, how could they ever have another good Thanksgiving in their lifetime? But we're going to get to the case. There, of course, was a press conference uh, just the other day, and I tell you something, a lot of the thing, a lot of these talking heads and look, talking heads are great. They give you an idea of what I'm referring to is experts that go on these network and these other TV shows. And they just have opinions. You know, even the FBI uh, behavioral, behavioral, <laughs> I say it correctly, the behavioral analysis unit, they're really just hypothesizing and theorizing. They're using certain uh, inputs into who, who they think that this person is. But what we really want to know is we want that slam dunk piece of evidence that's going to tell us exactly who this person is, not who we may think it is, but but that person that we think 100% it's 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 identified. DNA, you know, blood evidence. I, blood evidence we're all counting on blood evidence to come back. And all of these other things, all of these other scientific methods of identifying someone, you know, through the autopsy, what type of knife was used. Uh, we mentioned geofencing, where we would be able to identify every single cell phone or electronic device that's uh, on during those hours in that vicinity. We're all hoping that science, science will help us identify this perpetrator but when science doesn't help us, it's old-fashioned police work, wearing out those shoes, gumshoe work. Let's get in there. Let's make calls. Let's talk to the community. You know, according to the New York Times, the gruesome stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students remain unsolved. Now it's coming on uh, 12 days. The police asked the public to uh, keep sending tips. Investigators have now processed more than 1,000 tips in the aftermath of the gruesome stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students. But the authorities said Wednesday that they still do not have a suspect in the killings that have mystified and shaken this college town. After the early morning killing spree in Moscow, Idaho, on November 13th, the authorities sought to calm the community by saying that the attack at a home near campus was an isolated case and that there was no danger to the public. But the authorities have walked back those assurances in the days since. On Wednesday, investigators said they had collected 103 pieces of evidence, taken about 4,000 photographs, produced multiple three-dimensional scans of the crime scene, and conducted more than 150 interviews. They vowed to continue working through the Thanksgiving holiday and asked the public for both patience and tips. This is our highest priority, said Captain Roger Lanier of the Moscow Police Department. It will remain our highest priority. We owe that to the families. The details that have emerged have only deepened the mystery surrounding the grisly killings of four students who appear to have been spending a typical Saturday night in a community that had not recorded a murder in seven years. They were stabbed to death inside a rental house, while two others who lived there apparently slept through the attack. 
Phone logs indicate that the two of the victims made several unanswered calls to a friend in the early hours, and no one called 911 to report the attack until about noon. Three of the victims, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, and Zaina Kernodal, lived at the house. And the fourth, Ethan Chapin, was there visiting his girlfriend, Miss Kernodal. Um, so, folks, it's it's still, you know, they've given us somewhat new information and, and not really totally new information in the press conference. Um People have many call, many questions, many, many questions. Uh, but what's going to, I think, be the smoking gun answers to these questions is the forensic evidence. And I keep saying that. This is a case where science is going, science is going to solve this case. It's not going to be solved by, uh, I don't think it's going to be solved by interviewing and interrogation. But look, that. To me, that has to go on 24-7 until you get that little break. You know, I always used to, when I was in homicide, when I worked in the 2-3 squad in Spanish Harlem, I used to always count on our guys. Bring someone in from the neighborhood. Bring more people in. Keep bringing them in. Keep talking to people. Keep going around the community. Keep talking to your confidential informants. You're going to get some information. And you know something? We always did. But I think that in this case, it's complex. Look, everyone and their brother that's a talking head is weighing in on uh, on broadcast media, in the press. So it, it's a very, very popular case for people to weigh in on. But that doesn't mean that they know the answers. You know what I mean? If they knew the answers, they'd be, they'd be pulling these people in and asking them to assist with the case. And... I don't think anyone knows the answer. You got to go through all the steps of the investigation. You have to wear out those shoes. You know, you have to do. Uh, you have to. You have to do all the work. You have to interview the people. You have to uh, talk to people on the ground. You have to wear out those shoes and uh, conduct all the investigative interviews possible. Those are showing us for the first time inside the home where those four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death. The chilling videos depict the three young women all laughing, making jokes, enjoying life as roommates and friends. Tonight, police have not announced any suspects or major leads. Our Fox News crew on the ground in Idaho reports police took two boxes out of the home today, but otherwise there was little activity at the crime scene. Yesterday, police temporarily expanded the crime scene tape to include a wooded hillside behind the house. FBI agents and Idaho State Police officers were seen trying to peer through the third story windows where a pair of pink boots sit that Madison Mogan was pictured in. One possibility investigators were determining if the killer could have watched the students through those windows. Former Assistant FBI Director Chris Swecker says it's possible the killer was able to easily murder and subdue the students in their sleep, perhaps leaving behind very little DNA. What I'm getting, at least from what I've heard, and I'm not on the inside, is that this this could very well have been a stalker, a random you know person who, like Ted, Ted Bundy, Bundy, who took who, who pursued a target of opportunity. Wander all four of these victims. On Monday, the mother of murder victim Ethan Chapin spoke at a memorial for her son. Today we're here to honor the life and legacy of our son and brother, Ethan Chapin, one of the most incredible. You know, Ethan Chapin, just for you folks that are new to tuning in, he's a triplet. That's behind the mom there is his brother and sister. And just, you know, you think of obviously how ridiculously tough it is to have a sibling murdered. But when he's a triplet, just think of that. People you'll ever know. And tonight, Moscow police say they looked extensively into tips that Kaylee Gonzalez had a stalker. Investigators say they pursued hundreds of pieces of information, but have not been able to identify 
any stock or trace. It's amazing. We get our first look at the house, Matt, and you see the different levels there yeah. on. And that sliding glass door that could be pivotal in this case was kind of on a raised area. So it would go into the second floor, which kind of brings more confusion about where, if he entered the house, that thing, why he went upstairs or did he go upstairs first and then go downstairs and leave the bottom floor alone, right? Yeah. And what's also interesting is police are clarifying. They say that one of the roommates, uh, the phone, one of their phones called 911 for an unresponsive person. And we keep asking this question, who do they think was unresponsive? Right. Because the, the crime scene probably was so bloody. Were those victims left inside of their bedrooms with a closed door for you to think a person's unresponsive, not dead? Yeah. And you can see the blood. The pictures show the blood coming out actually yeah. on the side of the house. Matt, stand by if you would. Let's bring in retired FBI supervisory special agent James Galliano. James, I know you might have heard, you know, some experts saying that this. You know, this guy is one of the better um, FBI agents. Um, I met him once. He, he uh, lectured at the school I taught at, but he's a graduate of West Point. He's actually going for his Ph.D. right now. At, uh, and he teaches at St. John's University. But you could tell he's a street guy. He knows the street. Not all FBI guys are, are street guys. He is definitely a street agent, and he's run numerous homicide investigations. So let's listen to him. Now might be a stalker or someone who had, you know, targeted them or might, you know, kind of going back to the, the Gainesville murders back in 1990. You say you believe this is a crime of passion, right? And, and they used an edged weapon, and it always leaves a lot of clues, a lot of DNA. Do you think police have hit a wall because we haven't heard anything about any potential suspects? No, Trace, I don't think they, they, they've hit a wall. I think they're going to be very selective about what information they want to put out. Look, they haven't even announced a person of interest or a potential suspect. They haven't given a description of anybody or anything like that. Could they have somebody in their sights? Yes. Could they have more than one person in their sights? Yes. But they're being very selective about that. I think also to your point, uh, the question about uh, a crime of passion. I think it was P.D. James that once famously said in the murder room, Every murder comes down to one of the four L's, love, lust, loathing, or lucre, dirty money. So yep. police are going to be looking at it from that perspective. Was this a crime of opportunity or was there some intimate knowledge or intimate relationship here between the killer and the four kids that were brutally murdered? And we all talk about evidence, James. Everybody's looking at this. Now, a forensic professor at Jacksonville State, State said, said this, this to this Newsweek about the DNA. Quoting here, if you don't have anything to compare it to, meaning the DNA, it's not going to help me very much. So the key here is if the offender has ever given a DNA sample somewhere else or it's been collected on them and then you get a hit within the system on that subject if they did, in fact, leave viable DNA behind. Would you agree with that assessment, James? Yes. So, you know, folks, he answers yes. That's that's so true. You can have DNA and unidentified DNA, which could be the perpetrator's DNA. But if he's never been swabbed before, if he's never been convicted of a felony or certain misdemeanors, his day, DNA may not be in the CODIS, the combined DNA identification system or index system, whichever word uh, that's that's collected or maintained by the FBI. So you could have on the scene the perpetrator's DNA, but as yet to be identified if he's not in the CODIS database. So, so DNA has been around for a short period of time, uh, much shorter than, say, blood typing. So since about 1986 or 1987, we've been able to make positive matches on people through DNA. Now, when you do DNA analysis, there's two different ways to collect it. It can be court-ordered if somebody's a felon in the prison system, or you could do it voluntarily when you're, when you're chasing down your ancestry and trying to do it that way. Look, I, I, would, I would suggest here, too, the, the DNA that's going to be at that scene, obviously a, a big portion of this, an, an edged weapon, the police are saying it was a fixed blade. There's going to be a lot of blood. But in yeah. these type of crimes where somebody is doing intimate piercing um, of people's flesh, they could also cut themselves, too. So police are going to be working yeah. on that as well. And Matt Finn, we now know there were more people inside the house. Is there a worry up there among officers that the scene might be compromised? Sure, we've heard so many experts say that it might be contaminated. Yeah. And it really does beg the question, what was happening? You know something, guys, a crime scene integrity is, is um, 
up to the the uh, supervisory officers officers that are in charge. When you have a crime scene such as this, everyone wants to go inside. Everyone wants to take a look. You got to be strong enough as a boss, or strong enough as a cop, protecting the scene and saying to someone who outranks you, "Sorry, chief. Sorry, captain. Sorry, lieutenant. You can't go in there." If you go, if you're gonna go in there, because I understand you outrank me, could I get your your name? Would you sign my memo book as to why you're going in there? And usually that will make them back off because we've learned about crime scene contamination, low cards theory of exchange. When you go into a crime scene, you bring something from your body into the crime scene. When you leave the crime scene, you're going to take evidence out with you. So it's very, very important to keep the integrity of that crime scene and to keep people the hell out. Because again, I've been in hundreds of crime scenes and everyone, especially a murder crime scene, everyone wants to go inside and check it out. Thing, that they called more people to this house and said, we're calling 911 for an unresponsive person where they're not able to see this bloody crime scene or see dead people right in front of them. Yeah, nine days, James, nine days later, if you're in charge of this, what do you want? What do you want to see? What are you telling your people when they go inside? What are you looking for? Sure, two things. One is you got to go do good detective work you've got to work reach out this is the 21st century so there's digital exhaust left behind by cell phones by going through an easy pass there's lots of things uh opening up a laptop things like that you've got to do all the link analysis there the second piece of that is obviously the crime scene that you referenced and it's going to take yeah. a long time there are four victims here so there's going to be a lot of painstaking work ahead of them yeah and still People wonder how the two roommates on the bottom floor were able to escape this unharmed. Yeah. Matt Finn, James Galliano. Gentlemen, thank you both. Guys, uh, he, that, he, that was actually one of the best um, talking heads I've heard on any channel so far. He knows what he's talking about. He spoke about the digital evidence, the um, laptop evidence. He spoke about DNA. I think the first in New York State, I think the first DNA hit where they actually identified a perp through DNA happened in a homicide case in the 2-3 precinct with a serial killer by the name of Aaron Key. And that was 1997. So even though he referred to, I think DNA has been available for full, full 10 years before that, 1986, I think he said, it wasn't really being used and it wasn't really... Uh, I don't think anyone recognized uh, it, it could be accurate and how it could be used. So 1997 in New York State was the first uh, DNA hit. So we're talking about forensic evidence, digital evidence, of course, which is the cell phones, uh, the laptops, all of that type of evidence. Painstakingly, we must go through. We spoke about geofencing where they uh, run the cell tower and they run all information coming into that cell tower that covers that vicinity of the crime scene. Uh, the autopsy report, so damn important. We heard the um, coroner, not the pathologist, the coroner from this county uh, speaking about that they thought it was a rather large knife called a K-bar knife, um, which is the knife used by the military, specifically the Marine Corps. And based on the size of the wounds, um, they felt that uh, these wounds were caused by by a K-bar knife. So that you know that's so important too. The other thing that I um, conjectured on, I believe I believe the perpetrator is absolutely a male, hundred percent. I believe that. And if you look at it statistically, eighty to to eighty five percent of all murders in the United States are committed by a male. That's just the statistics, 85%. I also believe that the same weapon was used on all the victims. Thus, because of that, I also believe that it was one perpetrator. I don't believe that a perpetrator is going to stab someone and hand the knife off to his, his accomplice or his co-conspirator. Therefore, I think this was one perpetrator. I mean, I think a lot of times when talking heads on TV, um, the people that are in the behavioral analysis unit, 
They'll go further. They'll talk about the age of the perpetrator, the race of the per perpetrator, whether the perpetrator was organized or disorganized. We heard about some people about a month ago had their dogs skinned. Is that the work of a serial killer? Could that be one and the same as this perpetrator? I don't know. But can you make draw a nexus between that, between these people having their dog killed and skinned and this, this murder, this murder of four college students by knife? The other thing is, I, I believe, and I, I don't have the exact statistic, but Murders by knife, we've all heard, they're very intimate, it's very up close and personal, but they're a small portion of the overall murders that occur in this country. I think it may be anywhere from 15 to 20 percent are a cutting instrument, they, they call it a knife, a cutting instrument. Um, so that also brings us to the, the behavioral analysis of the perpetrator. Who is this perpetrator? Okay, it's a male. How old is he? There was someone on uh, a YouTube talking head that feels, that says he thinks that the perpetrator could be, he thinks he's young. He thinks he could be anywhere from 17, I think he said uh, 35. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty wide, you know, age grouping, 17 to 35. You know, everyone has their own opinion. I believe, and I spoke with some of my colleagues, I believe that this guy knows the victims. At least he knows them, who they are. He knows where they live. Obviously, he went to their house. I don't think he got to their house accidentally. That He just happenstance wound up at a house that had three females on the top two floors, two on the bottom and a male. So there were six people in that house at the time of these murders. Do you think he accidentally got there? The other part of this that they spoke, they still have not confirmed an area of entrance or exit. Could they know that and they're just not telling that? I think absolutely. They, they just released uh, in the last press conference, of course, that the victims were on the second and the third floor. And I, I, and I believe it was Ethan and, and, and Zena were on the second floor. Ethan, the male, the triplet, and, and his girlfriend Zena were on the second floor. And Madison and Kaylee were on the third floor. And the other two roommates who have yet to be named, they were on the first floor. So we all ask, why weren't they also killed if they were in the house? at the same time was this specifically targeted many talking heads many people think that the targets were um madison and kaylee they think they were targeted could it be that they had some kind of dispute between um whoever this perpetrator is could they have had a dispute with him a prior contact did one of them disrespect him or what he perceived to be a disrespect? And did he specifically target them because of that? Look, there's some sick minds out there, you know, even a perceived disrespect, you know, could it have been jealousy? Uh, you heard um, retired FBI agent Galliano say the four reasons uh, for murder, love, lust, loathing, and lucre. Lucre meaning, I never heard that term really before, and I was in the homicide business, which is dirty money. I guess they just wanted a fourth L, so they named it Lucre. <laughs> but so love, lust, loathing, loathing being hatred. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. We would see on the street people get killed for a dis, for a disrespect. A disrespect. Could this have been a disrespect or a perceived disrespect? I think, I think yes. I think absolutely. You know, when you look at these cases, uh, Patricia Burns, I think the two girls slept in the same room and the killer had to kill both, but one screamed and woke the couple in the nearest room, so we had to eliminate the two witnesses also. 
Well, you know, Patricia, we don't know that. We don't know because the two roommates downstairs apparently heard nothing. Karen Broderick, thank you for the five-pound super chat. Do you know if boots on the ground are knocking on doors yet asking for the public to volunteer a DNA swab? They do this a lot in the, in the UK. I um, suggested that, uh, that every person that is interviewed, they ask to voluntarily give up a DNA swab. And that twofold does twofold things. A, it eliminates them as a suspect. And B, it helps build the DNA uh, database in this community, which can be a helpful thing. Um, I don't know if they're doing that. I also suggested that they uh, take major case fingerprints because we sometimes because of DNA, we sometimes forget about the technology of fingerprints, which is uh, absolutely essential. There's still we could still find fingerprints, bloody fingerprints uh, at the scene. Uh, Janice Peace, bruises are rarely mentioned. And if he didn't cut himself, he may have bruises. How, Janice, that's all well and good. However, bruises don't leave a trace at the scene. So unless they apprehend the perpetrator now that they can inspect that person's body, a bruise isn't going to tell us anything if it happens a month from now, because all the bruises will be healed. So that, I, I mean, thank you for your suggestion. Yes, if we were able to apprehend the perpetrator right now, that, that would be extremely helpful. However, if we don't, a bruise, again, is not going to help us at this point. But DNA will, and that's why we're all... Many people are talking about blood left at the scene. Blood left at the scene would be uh, DNA collectible. However, like the news reporter said, an agent, Galliano, I think he pronounces his name, um, he, he agreed with, if you have unidentified DNA, it's not going to help us identify a perpetrator at this point. Um, you know, a lot of folks, there was a, a reporter and, you know, the title of this show was like, you know, misinformation in this case. How does it hurt the case? And, and one of the biggest pieces of misinformation was that the victims in this case were bound and gagged. That was absolutely false. Someone just made that up. And that's disturbing when people make things up, you know. And why are they making things up about the, the case? This case is sensational enough without someone making up uh for instances you know and it doesn't help the case in fact it hurts the case and you know enough of these enough of these talking heads on tv you know put their 10 cents into the case and i you know some of them are very articulate and knowledgeable others i hear what they say and i go how many murders you seen do you think this guy worked is he just repeating something he learned in a book? Because that's what a lot of people are doing, I think. I mean, could that the case of the dog that was skinned, could that have something to do with who murdered these four people? Absolutely. That is one of the um, sort of signatures of a would-be serial killer or someone that used to do that still kills animals, you know, but there's other things, too, Psych, uh, the psychology of a person like that. They talk about organized and disorganized offenders. That's, uh, you know, something that we haven't explored yet. We haven't explored that at all. And many people will be uh, looking into that also. Organized and disorganized offenders. I want to play a little bit of the... Um, of the captain in charge of this case. I want to play, play a little bit of his interviews because everyone was waiting for this the other night. And um, let's see what he has to say here. I think everyone pretty much heard it, but he closed out a lot of misinformation that was, uh, that was being reported. Good afternoon. I'm Captain Roger Lanier with the Moscow Police Department. I want to assure you, first off, that 
the loss of Zanna, Kaylee, Madison, and Ethan remains the highest priority for the Moscow Police Department. We will continue putting all of our resources into investigating and solving these murders. Investigators are prepared to work through the Thanksgiving holiday to continue their efforts. I also want to express our sincere appreciation to the Idaho State Police, the FBI, the University of Idaho, and the Latok County Sheriff's Office for their assistance. And I especially want to thank the community of Moscow for their outpouring of support through this incredibly difficult time. <clears throat> Today I'm going to recap in brief what we know. I'm going to provide some new information and I'm going to address some rumors. On the evening of November 12th and into the early morning hours of November 13th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home at approximately 1.45 a.m. after visiting a local bar and a street food vendor. Ethan and Zana were also out in the community at Sigma Chai and they arrived home at approximately 1.45 a.m. Two surviving roommates who were also out in the community arrived home at approximately 1 a.m. Later, on the morning of November 13th at 11.58 a.m., a 911 call was placed. <clears throat> the call reported an unconscious person. The call originated from inside the residence and a surviving roommate's cell phone was used. During that call, the dispatcher spoke to multiple people who were on scene. Moscow police officers responded and found two victims, two on the second floor and two on the third floor of 1122 King Road. The results of autopsies indicated that the four were stabbed multiple times and were likely asleep during the attack. Some had defensive wounds and there was no sign of sexual assault. We do not believe the following individuals were involved. The two surviving roommates, the male seen in a grub truck video uh, circulating on the internet, a private party who drove Kaylee and Madison home, any of the individuals who spoke to the dispatcher on the 911 call. We're also aware of a male whom Madison and Kaylee had called several times the morning of November 13th, and we do not suspect that individual. Detectives have canvassed the neighborhoods looking for evidence. Folks, I just want to mention something. When the captain talks about clearing somebody and they've been spoken to and they're cleared, that does not mean that if information changes, evidence changes, that they cannot bring that person back in and re-interview that, consider that person to be a suspect later on. It just means now, based on their investigation, this person has been cleared. Physical evidence, video surveillance, and they've contacted numerous residents to see if anybody may have seen or heard anything. They continue requesting tips that can be sent to our tip line or called into our tip line. The specific areas that we're interested in are detailed on maps on our city website and our Facebook page. But as stated earlier, generally south of Taylor Avenue to Palouse River Drive and the area west of US 95 over to the Arboretum. We have heard mention that Kaylee stated she may have had a stalker. Detectives have been looking into that and to this point have been unable to corroborate the statement, although we continue to seek information and tips regarding that report. No suspects have been named or arrested, and we continue looking for what we believe to be a fixed blade knife used in the murders. We have not released the names of any of the subjects who spoke on the 911 call, and we have not released the call itself. Any online reports of the victims being tied and gagged are not accurate. It's so great that he slammed the door on that because that's really, uh, you know, that, that's hurtful. That's hurtful to the family. It's hurtful to the case. It's hurtful to, you know, to the memory of the victims. 
it's just, you know, people just make stuff up when they don't know the information, they make it up. And, it, you know, it's damaging. Regarding the resources that we've put forth in this investigation, the Moscow Police Department has four detectives, 24 patrol officers, and five support staff dedicated to this investigation. The FBI has 22 investigators in Moscow and 20 additional agents assigned in various locations, as well as two members of the Behavioral Analysis Unit. The Idaho State Police has 20 investigators, a public information team, a forensic services and crime scene team, and 15 uniformed troopers who have been valuable in helping provide uh, community patrols and safety patrols. We very much appreciate their support. This is our highest priority. It will remain our highest priority. We owe that to the families. So folks, some really uh, good information there, but he saw, you know, he slammed the door. I'm glad he slammed the door on uh, that they were tied up. I want to just make uh, a suggestion that's been out there. And uh, as I said, that uh, the Fox News reporter, who is a retired Washington, D.C. homicide detective, he had gone to the scene and he, he questioned as to why that the canvas or the crime scene at the scene wasn't expanded. I mean, not a bad idea, but the fact that they immediately expanded it. Um, maybe a little bit of insecurity that they didn't expand it. The, the size of a crime scene uh, or whether it gets expanded or not is in the purview of the investigators. They may think, let's expand this crime scene because, look, they didn't find the murder weapon. We see they don't know the, at least we don't know if they know. We're, we're not privy to the case folder as we say all the time, we don't know if they've determined the entry and the exit into that building. There were several ways the perpetrator could have got in and could have got out. We don't know if they've pinpointed that yet. That's very, very important. Because the other thing is the, the exit. That is where they got a canvas. They got a canvas deep into the woods. That is a question I raised very early on also. How did the perpetrator get to this location? Did he walk? Did he take a vehicle? As some have suggested, potentially he could have been in the house before the victims got home, but he still had to get to the location some way. How? How did he get there? Very different if he drove there, a different type of canvas. Then we also maybe we should canvas did anyone see any suspicious vehicles around that time? And then, of course, the ring cameras were looking for all of those things. Um, debriefing people. I don't know how active a community this Moscow, uh, Idaho is in regards to people getting arrested. But every community in this nation has a drug problem. And people get arrested for using illicit drugs. I think you got to debrief all of these prisoners, even go into the jails and ask the prisoners, the people that are committing crimes, ask them, have they heard anything? The other thing is, it's obvious, I think, is to interview all parolees, released parolees, obviously, and sex offenders who may reside in that area. Bring them in. Parolees, you can you can just get their parole officer to tell them, tell him to come in Monday. They have to come in. They have to report. They're not free as a normal person is. They have to report to their parole officer. You may ask, so, look, we would have parolees in New York City commit a murder on a Friday and go to the, his, their parole officer on Monday. Oh, they didn't think that we would talk to their parole officer, that this guy... This guy's coming in to see you on Monday and he just committed a murder. It's it's crazy. And and you would not believe how many of, of people in that circumstance actually report to their parole officer. It's baffling. You're like, oh, my God, the guy came in. Do you believe he came in? 
He's wanted for a murder. He did a murder on Friday night, and he's coming in to meet his parole officer. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to this channel, a real crime podcast with a police perspective, go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to this channel, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel members. I would count them five different levels. And you can join that if you wish to support us. You see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel. They've been supporting us, big supporters of Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. And uh, we we uh, we appreciate them so much. You know, guys, uh, the amazing thing, and, and I don't, I take no umbrage at this. There's many people predicting what happened here. But do we know for a fact what happened here? Do we know what occurred? We do not. We do not. But, you know, some theories maybe are better than others. Why would the FBI behavioral analysis unit be on the scene here? Because they're not sure what the hell we have here, you know. Uh, up close and personal, that was used earlier. Maybe it wasn't those exact words. Uh but that was used, that it was a personal attack. You know, whenever you talk about the use of a, of a knife or a blade in an attack, people say that. Johnny Gonzalez, I think somebody from the sororities, they were in, did it, among other things, happening in that town close to the crime scene. Well, if it was someone from the sororities, that would indicate that it's a female. Uh, we said earlier on, and, you know, you could be right, and I could be wrong that there's an 80% chance that the perpetrator is a male. So I don't believe males are in sororities, but it's it is a really high statistical chance that this perpetrator uh this this perpetrator is a um is a male, okay? Um you know, let's uh, uh, Sedona Sky is an escalating serial killer from out of state, a predator. You know, there have been certain uh, talking heads online and um, on um, on broadcast broadcast that have suggested that this could be a serial killer. I'm not going to slam the door on that. I'm not, you know, could it be? It could be. I don't think so. And one of the reasons I don't, a couple of reasons. One of them is uh, serial killings these days in 2022 are quite rare and the reason being is that in this day and age perpetrators of murders get caught much quicker than the second or third instance so many people who would be serial killers don't get to do that uh, don't get a second or a third murder because they get caught earlier on. Let's hope that in this case, whoever did this gets caught uh, earlier on because it's a horrific crime. And we're all hoping and praying that uh, Nadia Kusan, the sister of Kaylee, said they arrived at 1.56 a.m. The sister said they aren't telling it right. You know, Nadia, I don't know if the sister of... Um, of Kaylee is helping or hurting the police with doing her own parallel investigation. Perhaps she should, if she finds out anything, and I know she found out some cell phone information before the police even had it. I think if she really wants to help, she should give that information to the police and not act as if she's sort of one-upped the police. You know, she wants to see the people um, who did this apprehended. So then help the police. Don't try to one-up them by showing that you can get information quicker and, uh, than, they, than they got it. Um, we talked about the debriefing arrestees and parolees, sex offenders in the area. Also, one of the most important things in this case, and I said it from the beginning, is to interview all of their friends in depth. Perhaps one of their friends knows something that – we don't know. They know something that's so crucial to this case. 
because we talked about a, a a stalker, right? That um, I believe it was Kaylee had a stalker, and so far the police have not been able to find that stalker. What did she tell her friends about that? That came from somewhere, right? The fact that she had a stalker, it's out there now. So who did she tell? Someone's repeating this to the fact that the, it makes the police look stupid. If there's a stalker, and I'm not saying the police are stupid, it makes them look stupid when people are saying she has a stalker, but they can't find out who it is. Did she have a stalker? Did she not? Who did she tell this to? Maybe they know more information than is being let on. You know, uh, Jason Lockery, um, the killer had to know the residents. He had to have knowledge. They, they had no security cameras inside. Jason, I happen to agree with you 100%. I think this was, you know, as much as we don't want to use the same language as the police, I believe the per people or persons in this case were targeted. Were targeted. And I believe that the person that did this knows them or a couple of them, at least peripherally, not personally. Maybe he thinks he knows them better than he actually does. Because something caused this rage. Who doubts that this is a crime of rage? This is a crime of rage, 100%. And whoever did this, again, became enraged. You heard uh, FBI agent, retired FBI agent Galliano, the three, the four L's, which you know, I actually never heard that before. Uh, love, lust, loathing, and, and, and lucre, which is dirty money. Those are the four reasons for murder. Love, lust, loathing, and lucre. <laughs> that never got to New York City. We never used that uh, the four L's. You know, we used a lot of other things, but we didn't use the four L's. Um, Catherine Mooney, an ex-boyfriend or a jilted dude, or or Catherine, uh, someone that believes he's jilted, but there's no basis in reality for that. Maybe he just thinks that he, in his mind, that he had some personal relationship with one of these girls. And in fact, he never did. Uh, Max and the killer definitely knew there were more than one person in the house. He knew what he was getting into. Perhaps, perhaps he didn't know that one of the persons was a male. He didn't expect Ethan to be staying over because uh, a killer like this, you know, Basically, they're cowards, you know. Um, Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, when he was spotted on the street by civilians in downtown L.A. that chased him down and beat him with a pipe, he ran like a, like a scared deer, but he was a big, tough guy with a gun and a knife in his hand. He killed people in their own homes, you know. So whoever this guy is, he didn't want to have a fight. Look, he killed people that were sleeping. Sleeping. How horrific is that? To attack someone in their beds and kill people that are sleeping. Uh, crime, cops, criminals, courts, victims. How does a college student afford a range of over 50,000 plus rich family? Absolutely. Well, you just hit it on the head. Yeah. What do you think? Her family bought it for her or leased it for her, right? Uh, of course, a college student on their own can't afford a Range Rover. I can't afford a Range Rover. Range Rovers, I think, are even more than that. I think they're more like seventy-five to one hundred thousand. Uh, so yeah, she's probably she came from. Could that? Could something like that cause animosity with people from the town, people from the community, jealousy? Absolutely, absolutely, that could cause. Someone to get jealous. Look at these college kids. They're disgusting. They go to class. They get drunk every weekend. And look at this girl. She drives a Range Rover. Could that cause animosity in a sick mind? Yes. Um, you know, the captain and the, the chief fry from the uh, Moscow police was talking about all the resources that are, are used on this and the amount of interviews that have been conducted. Um they got the FBI, the Idaho State Police, um, of course, the Moscow Police. 
and they've done X amount of interviews. Um, you can't interview enough people. You really can't. That when I worked in homicide and we'd have a homicide out in the street, we'd try to bring as many people in as we could. Because sometimes people know something. And even if they may not think they do, as they start talking, they come up with stuff that you sure as hell didn't know. Uh, Cami Bachet, Bill, do you believe the killer knew about the first floor? You know, I I can't really I can't really answer that. I, I what that he did he know that there were two other girls in the first floor? Strange that they were spared, right? Strange that he didn't kill. Was it that their rooms were locked? Could that be? Um, or did he not know about that? He just knew. I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, Cammy, I think that I a lot of folks on this case, when they don't know the answer to something, they need to say that because there's a lot of misinformation and, and a real garbage going out there, you know, and as that was the title of the show, how does misinformation hurt this case? And of course, now, like never before in the internet age and in the, the age of uh, content creators, I'll say, guys like me, who put out content, you want to make sure that the content is correct and you're not putting out rumors or just making of, could it have been this? Could it have been that? Would it, would have, could have, should have, you know? You want to try to put out facts. Um, you know, the, the the bizarre thing, too, is that, you know, the call, I think I have it, 11.58, the police got an 11.58 a.m., the police got a 911 caller from inside the house from the phone of one of the two surviving roommates. Now, that we would all like to know the answer to. What did those two roommates see? What did they hear? And why did it take them so long to call? That's what we want to know. That's what every single person wants to know. And that's what the police right now are withholding. Probably for good information, they're withholding that. They don't want you to know that because that could be the smoking gun of this case, you know, that they do not want to put that out there. Because that's that's what they have. They're holding on to that. That's the private facts and circumstances they're holding on to. And I totally understand. You know, I hear a lot of these folks, they're almost like demanding that the police release the 911 call. And the police are absolutely not going to release that because that could be the biggest part of their case. And they're not going to release it. So Again, I'm predicting that that has a lot to do uh, with this case and a lot to do of their investigative strategy. Therefore, they're not going to release that at this time. Just gave an update on the investigation into the grisly murders that left four Idaho students dead. They previously said they believe this was a targeted attack. Now, Fox's Dan Springer asked Moscow police captain a great question. The captain's name was Roger Lanier. He said, why won't they tell us which of the four victims was the actual target? We have the integrity of the investigation to preserve, and we feel like that information is integral to us and how we conduct our investigation. Releasing that to the public may or may not flood us with a lot of information that's not relevant or specific to what we're looking at. So we do want more information, but we don't want to, to uh, we don't want to put our investigation in jeopardy by releasing what we have. There's always a balance between what you're willing to release versus what you're trying to gather. That's the puzzle. Investigators also say they've received hundreds of pieces of information. The victim, Kaylee Concavs, had a stalker, but they haven't been able to verify that she had a stalker. We obtained information through some of our interviews that Kaylee had made some comments about a stalker. So that's where that came from. Um, we have followed up looking at specific time frames and specific areas of town so far we have not been able to corroborate it but we're not done looking into that piece of information
All right. All right. Police say this case is their top priority, as the community is left on edge, obviously. They still will not release the 911 call, saying it's part of the investigation. They've collected so far 100 pieces of evidence, conducted 150 interviews, and are going through over 1,000 tips. Plus, the FBI has been brought in to assist for almost two weeks now since the murders actually took place. I'm surprised. Maybe you are, too. We don't have more answers. Lenny DePaul is the former U.S. Marshal Regional Fugitive Task Force commander. Lenny, are you surprised we don't have more answers? Uh, well, good evening, Brian. And to answer that question, no, I'm not. I mean, uh, you know, the law enforcement right now is on a fishing expedition. You know, this guy's great. I love this guy because he's the real deal. You know, he's the real deal. He's not trying to, uh, you know, put throw fluff out there. He knows how these cases work. And he's going to tell it like it is. He's the, he's the best. I mean, they're, you know, they're chasing a ghost. But but it's all about collection right now. Human intelligence, signal intelligence, uh, that crime scene is certainly important. Uh, the digital footprint that everybody talks about. I mean, not only with the suspect uh, being in that house and, and what type of uh, cellular intercept may have happened, but the victims themselves. Yes, it was a targeted attack, Brian, definitely. And who was the target? I mean, they did a methodical job, the suspect. They got into that house knowing they were probably asleep. Um, it's going to be important uh, to identify who that was and then work your way backwards. Right. So note the suspect so far that they can say is not a suspect. The drivers that dropped them off, the roommates that were left alone to sleep, the vendor that they saw at the food truck, the ex-boyfriend, all not suspects. So rule them out. I'm questioning the terminology. And you tell me if this is so this is police vernacular. The, the one of the roommate's phone was used to call 911. Why wouldn't they just say the roommate called 911? And the fact is they said they were unconscious when clearly it was a bloodbath. How do you make sense of those two things? Well, as an investigator in these types of investigations, especially homicides, you got four victims, you know, they're turning their worlds upside down. I mean, those cellular intercepts, those phones they're dumping, there could have been something on that phone that they don't want to release to the public. I mean, they're, they're you know, they hit the ground running with this investigation. The FBI forensic folks are doing their their work with the crime scene itself. I mean, there's a ton of information there. Um, and, and again, like I said earlier, they're chasing a ghost. Once they, uh, right. you know, hopefully they'll get a suspect. They'll identify somebody. And, and uh, you know, then they got a manhunt at that point. Right. And hopefully we'll get some answers. And they're keeping uh, their facts out for a reason. Hopefully they have more to go on than they seem to indicate today at the press conference. Bunny, thanks so much. Have a great Thanksgiving. So, folks, uh, there's Lenny, the uh, <laughs> he's the uh, fugitive enforcement guy, does a hell of a job. Mountain Kayaker, thank you for the 199 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. So, guys, there's, again, there's a million things that they have to do on this case, forensic evidence-wise, talking to people. I say, you know, stand out on the street with flyers. Help us help you flyers with pictures of the victims. If you know anything, even if, if you think it's insignificant, call this number. Talk to the investigators. If you know anyone, if you see something, say something. That became the mantra in New York City after 911. If you see something, say something, because what you saw or what you see could save save people's lives. And uh, so, so, so important. And, you know, this case can be a little bit baffling. Uh, when they spoke about, again, he just spoke about that uh, Kaylee had a, uh, a potential stalker, but they haven't been able to find out who that was. Wouldn't that be a little strange? Don't girls talk to each other about things like that that happens? Don't they tell their friends, mostly their friends, maybe not their family. They'll tell their friends. So you would think that their friends would know who this alleged stalker was. But right now it's frustration. It's being very, it's very frustrating. Uh, Yesenia Hernandez, Richard Ramirez was caught down the street where I lived. Wow. Yeah, and the crowd chased him down based on the fact that his photo was put on the front page of all the newspapers in L.A. And uh, Mystique, 100% Bill. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming by today. I know 12.30 uh, p.m. the day after Thanksgiving isn't my usual time to broadcast, but 
I wanted to get out on this case and get out on the um, on the press conference and, and weigh in a little bit. Uh, and I think that, you know, the title of this was let's why, you know, the, about misinformation. And again, not everyone that's reporting on this case is giving accurate information. And, you know, what, what drives me sort of crazy and probably you guys too, is that, um, uh, do you think this killer is a psychopath or a sociopath? They're still pointing towards the ex-boyfriend. He's not in the total clear. Do you think they're telling the public that to throw the killer off? I think they're, they're telling the public what they want the public to know and and the press, of course. And the press, of course, is chomping at the bit. They want to know things that the police don't want them to know because they want them barking up a different tree, you know, uh, Martha Woodworth, the killer, knew them, but not personally. He flirted, stalked, and attacked when he was blown off. That's also why I think he lives in the neighborhood of the murders. You know, Martha, I had um, commented on that very early on, uh, and there's something called geo-profiling. And that simply means that criminals, most of the time, commit crimes in the area that they live because they're lazy. They don't want to travel, you know. So they commit crimes in the very area that they live. And I agree with you, Martha. I believe he's from that area, no doubt. Uh, let's see. Oh, you guys are still talking about the Range Rover. <laughs> Milwaukee civilian, police off the cuff. I am not surprised others in the house did not hear. Remember, or saw your goals, poor son upstairs during the murder. You know, I reported on that case. That was a horrific case. You're 100% correct. She was stabbed, I think, over 40-something times. And her son, on the top floor of the house, heard nothing, heard absolutely nothing. Uh, Scorch 429, with all the physical and digital evidence they must have in this case, knowing the fact that it's targeted, 90 interviews, you'd think it would be easy to catch this guy. You know, you always think that, that oh, this should be easy. Why aren't the police further ahead? But, you know, some you could criticize the Moscow police for being inexperienced. But they have the FBI with them. They have the state police assisting. So are we also criticizing them? No, it's, they have a team. They have a task force in on this. Yeah, and agreed. The Moscow police, they don't get many murders. I think this is their first murder in seven years. So, yeah, they're not experienced at it, but, uh, you know, they, they have help. They have help there. Um, e, the killer has some form of fighting experience, wrestling, fistfights to confront killing a couple. Why do Americans fail to understand knives are lethal? You only need to be quiet and quick. I agree. I don't know if the um, killer has any fighting experience. I, I, I don't know if you can... Perhaps he's a hunter. Perhaps he's been in the military and he has a um, proclivity and a skill set with knives because he killed four people, didn't he? Uh, but there's certain things. Uh, there's certain things that we don't know for sure. We don't know things. We can maybe, uh, again, hypothesize, theorize. Phil says spitball about it. You could talk about it. You can weigh in and say. Uh, Paul Vest, I hate to suggest this, but I'm wondering if any of these young women had an OnlyFans account or sugar daddies in their life. Well, I mean, look, this investigation includes everything. It includes the digital track, the digital footprint that all of these victims surely have by a cell phone, by a laptop. You know, they're all on Twitter, they're on Instagram, um, all of these these digital footprints are, that are on social media, TikTok, you know. So I'm sure the police are looking at all of those things, you know. Uh, YouTube, you know, we used to get kids that would post videos on YouTube blame, bragging about a shooting they just did the night before. So police in, in these days, uh, Nadia Kuzan, ca um, Canada, thank you for the uh, $3 super sticker. I got it right this time. I didn't say you were from California. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okie dokie. Four Ds. 
Four L's, love, lust, loathing, or lucre. Interesting. Yes, interesting. You know, tell you the truth, I was a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Homicide for 10 years. I never heard the four L's before, so maybe it's an FBI thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> love, lust, loathing, lucre. <laughs> I, I'll have to remember that one. I don't... Uh, Aaron Salzberg, yes, please stop assuming and spreading rumors. I don't know who you're referring to, Aaron. Um, Canadian cookie, it really doesn't have any importance if she bought the rover or not. She's not here anymore yet. Yeah, we can't uh, criticize someone who's no longer with us, that's for sure, you know. Uh, well, guys, that's about all I have for you guys today. I just say uh, if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube Give us a thumbs up, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell. And if you want to support us on Patreon, we have three different levels. And we also have uh, five different levels on our YouTube channel. And uh, again, if you like real crime from a police perspective, uh, then you're in the right place. Uh, uh, sips of coffee. Bill, what's your opinion on 106 pieces of evidence in a murder of four? I can't help but wonder if that's for You know something... It's not the amount, it's sort of the quality. It's really the quality of the evidence. You just need one thing to blow this case wide open. One piece of evidence, one phone call, one text message, one instance of them finding us a, a cell phone in this area at a certain time that belongs to the perp. One piece of DNA blood evidence. That's all you need. So it's not the amount. Again, it's the quality. One thing can blow this case open. Folks, I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Uh, I hope everyone had a great, great Thanksgiving. Uh, I surely did. And I'm coming at you um, live from uh, Jupiter, Florida. And people get pissed at me when I say that. They're like, oh, you're live from Jupiter, Florida. But I got to tell you where I am. I'm live from Jupiter, Florida. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great rest of your Thanksgiving week uh, weekend. God bless, and I'll talk to you very soon. One episode, just